Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel. This is the Unexpected Cosmology, and I'm here with my buddy Dave. And I, I think he probably needs an introduction for a lot of you, which is kind of a weird thought for me. We were just discussing in the last couple of minutes. I, I think I, I I probably shook myself. I think Dave remained calm. Calm. I shook myself up more by having some tech issues uh, before we. You know, the house wasn't exactly burning down when we got it worked out on a timely order. But we were discussing, and I think this is like the first time that we've actually been live doing a, a show together. If you guys go back to like a few years ago now, probably like some of my old Discord recordings, you might hear Dave in the background at the end. Uh, but it, I say it's kind of odd because he's he's my right hand man. He's he's like always there when I need him, and uh, I've in communication with them all the time and he you know built my website and i i think it was uh probably spring of 2020 and i'm kind of just minding my own business you know writing and, and dave entered my life and he's like oh man we need to like you know get you a back then i was on my old website uh our way is the highway and so it was through dave that i rebranded it to the unexpected cosmology the rest is history and if i'm not mistaken dave uh, he was telling me that if he has to run out tonight, um, it's, you know, because his wife is giving birth. So we're down to the wire. Is that correct? Is that uh, my sheep? Oh. Yeah. A, yeah, actually, Timmy. Yeah, he, he's been born already. Okay. All right. So it's yeah. your sheep. So if your sheep are giving birth, Okay. It, that's actually a lot harder. I, we were talking about that in the chat before. Um, you know, the home birth thing. Home birth was nothing. Giving birth to sheep is like, it's a whole thing. Uh, so how many times have you uh, have you doctored or, or been there while your sheep are giving birth? This will be the second time. So I've only okay. done it one time. Well, I hope time, you... it was bananas. <laughs> so yeah um all right so good so we have probably a lot of material to cover tonight and uh dave is there anything you want to you know tell people about yourself you know any information anything at all not really find me on discord i'll be there okay so yeah dave is a, a staple at our tuck discord group he's in there all the time and oh i should say i i bring up that when he came into my life in 2020 it was through the anti-paul movement right i mean it was you liked my writings on paul as i was you know writing against paul and and dave's like oh we gotta you know we gotta make this into like this whole thing and and then i started shying away from it and i was silent on it and then i kind of started investigating it again and kind of went back pro paul and i'll never forget the phone call where um Hopefully, I'm not throwing you under the bus, Dave. But um, it, no, or putting, okay. I, no, putting you on the spot. I should put it that way. But you're on uh, Tuck, which is just you're on the spot for the next two hours, anyways. But I, I remember he called me up on the phone, and he's kind of like, kind of miffed. You know, he's like, "Are you, are you backpedaling on Paul?" And I was like, "Well, you know, I'm kind of giving it. I think, you, I think you were a little angry about that. But now I'm actually kind of surprised. I, I go into Discord, and and Dave is like, he's you're you're like uh i don't know you're kind of like defending paul now right i mean you kind of pretty much. come around yeah yeah, come yeah. all right yeah uh, you know me and paul we're like 
We're like this now, I think. I, I feel like Paul is uh, just everything I read, every community I go into, every church, every like online community. I feel like Paul's writing to that group. <laughs> and it it's to me now, it's just really clear that he's just beating down the knuckleheads for, you know, all the weird stuff they're doing and saying and whatever. And I, I man, I felt like he was beating me down for a while. And uh, I, I've actually gotten a lot out of him lately where I know a lot of people like kind of turn away from Torah because of him. And that's a whole thing, but I, uh, I can really appreciate where he's coming from. If you look at it through the lens of uh, certain people doing a certain thing in a certain circumstance. Yeah. Well, I, br I brought that up because I, I kind of feel like we were on the same journey together. We kind of both went into the anti-Paul thing around the same time. And then we started climbing. It, it just kind of happened that way too. It wasn't, it wasn't planned. And we're both. And I, I think that, you would say this as I would say this, that I feel like after going through that experience that I appreciate him a lot better because I've had to wrestle with, you know, the things that he's saying and, and going, is he really saying that? And, you know, as you really dig into it, you're like, Oh, that's what he's saying. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's quite spectacular, but all that to say, let's get into this. I have this really weird. Oh. Um, and hopefully Dave doesn't think this is weird at all. It, just, so you guys know that, you know, he's, like literally at my side all the time. In fact, when I, before I came out with a, the fundraiser, I, I, Dave was one of the first people I went and I talked to and I asked him, you know, what do you guys, what do you think about this? And, and that kind of stuff. So just want to throw this all out there to you guys. Uh, thank you all for pouring out your, your hearts within like a couple weeks. I not only raised the funds that I needed for uh, February, I raised, funds for March. Okay. So as I went through before, I, I want to keep this at a minimal week by week. I just want to keep you guys updated. Uh, you know, we're on an $8,000 budget per month to keep Tuck running. And, and so we were able to, uh, so you can see here, I just started my March just today, my March fundraiser, and I'm asking for $5,700. Why is that? Because the, the money that came in from your donations went to cover not only February, but into March as well. So this is how much money we have. Uh, and I, I haven't even included the, 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 the funds from the, the store, the, the profit from the store. So when the profit, it's looking really good. There, a lot of you have added to, like Patreon has shot up. And so I'm expecting that we'll even bring this down more. And the goal is each month, we're gonna get this down. Like next month, maybe, you know, I could ask for 4,000 or 3,000. We'll just keep getting this down and down and down and then we'll be self-sufficient and out of the hole. And thank you everybody for, uh, you know, jumping in and sacrificing, which ha happens to be our tour portion this week, uh, sacrifice. And uh, to keep to keep tech running. I keep stumbling tonight. Maybe I'm just really nervous being on with you, Dave. Um, <laughs> I put this really weird photo up for the uh, the thumbnail, and I don't. I'm questioning why I did this now. You know, here they are carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's this weird, like medieval-looking Ark of the Covenant, and with these, like these, uh, uh, what kind of caps are these? These are the um, whatever. Was it? I always want to call them the Pythagorean, but the, the Pygorian or whatever caps. It's just a really, really weird. Uh, image, but um, yeah. All right. 
Now, last week, I was thinking about you the whole time, Dave, because this is what Dave really, when I asked Dave to come on and do tour portions with me, he said, I want to do this week, which happened to be week, what, 18 last week. And something came up. He wasn't able to do it. And we we're like, bummer. I almost wish I could just say, let's just do a redo and do last week again and pretend like it didn't happen last week. And then you can come in and give all your observations. It was I, his, he said his favorite tour portion and it was a really great one. So here's some of the things we covered. We looked at a uh, law for servants and, as a reminder, what was the first thing that happened when they come out of Egypt? Yahuwah is like, okay, you guys were just slave slaves in Egypt, and you saw how they treated you. So now I want you to take that and recognize that you are not to treat other people the same way. So here's how I want you to treat people. So we saw law for laws for servants, personal injury laws. Uh, restitution laws, which I said the theme of the the theme word for the week was restitution. We saw property laws, social responsibility laws, justice and mercy, Sabbath laws, high Sabbaths, and I probably missed some stuff. There was so much good stuff in there. But I also showed Matthew 5 and how interestingly enough, Yehusha HaMashiach taught on Exodus 21 through 24 in Matthew 5 and 6, the, the Mount of the Beatitudes. And he was taking it from a from a perspective of of really gnosis really where it's like okay you see the law but this is how i want you to eternalize it i want you to take it you know i'm going to raise the bar and and you know you're not going to be doing the minimal anymore you're going to be doing this up here because it's you know i want you to have a circumcised heart the one thing i did want to quickly point out too and here's the cover for last week i feel like i really botched this is we read this passage here and it was talking about the batula uh, the virgin and of course, I made the point that according to Pamela, a, a Betula is not necessarily a uh, a virgin from birth, that a Betula is, is someone who is set aside, which means that you could have had sexual intercourse in the past, but now you are set aside again. And that really changes this passage away from, you know, whether that a woman, just because she's lost her virginity doesn't mean that you're not going to pay the, the bride price. I know this is a heavily debated passage, but the understanding of that word, my point was really changes this. But if you look here at the, the picture, you see all these women with the, the different jewelry and these, these coin necklace uh, headbands. And I had started out saying last week that typically women back then, they didn't have bank accounts. And so they actually carried their value with, with them. And you would go see these women and you would see what the bride price is. Like, this is kind of like what they're worth. And that's why Yahushua HaMashiach gave the parable of the woman who lost the coin and she searches every corner of the house. I always thought that was really weird. Why is a woman, you know, stopping everything to, to search for a coin? And then she looks out the window, goes, found my coin, right? And it's because the coin came off of her, uh, her headband and uh, kind of some interesting historical context there. Dave, what was uh was there anything last week since you couldn't be here that you know like what's 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 your favorite part of last week's tour portion you know i i i don't necessarily have anything like uh exciting or weird or whatever about that in fact i like that torah portion so much because i'm such a dummy and it literally point blank just tells you what to do you know it's one of my favorite in the torah you know all throughout scripture 
and some of the stuff we even we're going to talk about tonight is like kind of like out there sort of like esoteric i'm going to be talking about some alchemy stuff because it's all in there but these particular passages to me are just so clear it's like this is what you do this is how you do it the end and for me you know like being a farmer and just like seeing how people are supposed to like you know care for their animals or like watch out if your dog runs out and bites somebody or like in that case the goring of the you know your neighbor on the ox and all that it just you know it's it's one of those areas of scripture where there's really no uh question about what's being said you know for you to be done you know yeah and we talk a lot about you know that there's 613 laws in the torah that is you know explained in the or that explain the ten commandments but obviously we were talking beforehand in our in our discord group for a couple hours we had an amazing conversation on the torah tonight and how a lot of the these 613 don't necessarily apply to you and me right i mean we're both we're both men we're not menstruating women we're not levite priest at least not that we know of and uh now you you are living on a land with animals and so you're you know you've got to think more about fence laws and that kind of stuff i have no pets i have no animals i don't have to worry about in uh, an ox going out to gore somebody, but last week's portions really were about applying to everybody. You know, how, this is how you love your neighbor, right? Um, but we're seeing a shift now tonight. Exodus 25 specifically, I put here in these bullet points, uh, shifts from social responsibility and restitution laws to the construction of the tabernacle and via offering. And interestingly enough, the methods of worship and the building of the temple and and priestly roles they actually consume 50 chapters of the torah and you compare that with the two chapters of creation or the, the measly the, the measly two chapters of creation really i mean you could devote a whole book to creation right or contrarily 15 chapters dedicated to abraham uh, the life of abraham and yet we have 50 chapters that are devoted to worship uh and temple building and uh, so let's get right into it. So the way I'm going to do this, Dave, is I'm going to read from the paleo. And I, I'm showing the notes here from my uh, my uh, cross-reference uh, tour portion study guide, where you can see the King, everybody can see the King James on the side. And uh, I'll read through a section, and then I'll give you first chance to give any observations, comments, notes, anything you have like that. And then I'll follow. So here we go. And Yahuwah, the ever-living, declared unto Al-Mashaha, saying, Set words in order unto the sons of Yasharel, and they shall take for me a gift offering. From everyone whose heart compels him shall you take my gift offering. And this gift offering, which you take from them, gold and silver and copper and thukalath. Let's see what this is right here, number one and two. Uh, this would be uh, two purple colors, a cerulean purple and a reddish purple. So, uh, Thukaloth and Eregamon. And crimson worm, uh, crimson and white goat's hair. And ram skin dyed from red earth. And Thuka Shyam hide and Shatayam wood. Or uh, this would be like uh, Shittim wood. Oh, it says over there in the King James, badger skins. So, I'm kind of curious uh, there about the Thuka Shyam hide. Oil for the light, 
sweet smelling spices for a portion of the oil and for spiced incense, onyx gemstones and gemstones to be installed to the afawad and to the ornamented breastplate. And that would of course be the ephod. Uh, so the, the gemstones that go into the, uh, the Levitical ephod. And you shall fashion to me a set-apart place that I may settle down to dwell in their midst. Like all which I from uh, showing unto you, or uh, you see there in the King James, according to all that I show thee, the manner of building of the dwelling place and the manner of building all the vessels, and thus shall you fashion. Now I'm going to do a pause there. I'm not sure. Dave, if there's anything you wanted to talk about there starting out. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, the uh, badger skins. I remember Zach Bauer, when I first was getting into the Torah and reading through it, he brought that up. Um, interestingly, a bunch of different translations use ram skins, which I would say makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, I wanted to go over... I just had a few scriptures, um, some ideas. Um, let's see if you guys don't mind if I read from my notes. Yeah, that's fine. I'm just gonna quickly say it like, yeah, it is kind of strange how badger skins because it doesn't seem like, uh, I don't even know if they were, <laughs> it would be hard to hunt a bunch of, how much, how many badger skins would you need? So yeah, you're right. Uh, what did you say the other one was? Uh, Ramskin? Ramskins, yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I mean, a clean animal versus a non-clean animal seemed kind of weird, too. Um, okay, I wanted to read from Sirach, uh 35, 1 through 11. He's talking about the law and sacrifices. He says, he who keeps the law makes many offerings. He who heeds the commandment sacrifices a peace offering. He who returns a kindness offers fine flour. And he who gives alms sacrifices a thank offering. To keep from wickedness is pleasing to Yahweh, and to forsake unrighteousness is atonement. Do not appear before Yahweh empty-handed, for all these things are to be done because of the commandment. The offering of a righteous man anoints the altar, and his pleasing odor rises before the Most High. The sacrifice of a righteous man is acceptable, and the memory of it will not be forgotten. Glorify Yahweh generously. Do not stint the first fruits of your hand. With every gift, show a cheerful face and dedicate your tithes with gladness. Give to the Most High as He has given to you. Sorry, as He has given and as generously as your hand has found. For Yahweh is the one who repays, and He will repay you sevenfold. Um, kind of interesting there. Just obviously, uh, the the thing that comes to mind is there's a bunch of scriptures about. Um, you know, how your offerings were, you know, I never wanted them. This is something a lot of people use in the like Yahweh is Satan movement and all that. Like he didn't want any of those sacrifices, but this is talking about the sacrifice of righteous people is what he wants. He doesn't want the sacrifice of an unrighteous person. Um, and it obviously points out how important it is. Um, I just want to point out five types of offerings. You got your burnt offering, which symbolizes the worshiper's Complete devotion to Yahweh. It's the entire animal being consumed. Um, some people talk about how it signifies total surrender to Elohim. You got your grain offering, the minka or mincha, 
non-blood offering, which expresses gratitude towards Yahweh for his provision. It consists of fine flour, oil, and frankincense is burned on the altar, and the rest is consumed by the priests. You get the peace offering, um, shalomim, aimed at expressing fellowship and thanksgiving. This offering involves sharing the sacrifice animal among the altar, fat portions, the priests, and the offer symbolizing uh, communal fellowship with Elohim. You've got your sin offering, which is atonement for unintentional sin or specific ritual impurities, um, which underscores the importance of purification and reconciliation. Um, obviously, there's varying procedures based on what it is. And then you have your guilt offering, the asham. I don't know if I'm saying any of these right, but it's focused on atonement for sins affecting other people or sacred things. And this offering uh, is for restitution um, plus interest to the wrong party, highlighting the importance of making amends, which coming into Torah for me, um, just reading about how, you know, the, the, the balance, balanced scales and like sort of how there is restitution and there's no court to tell us to do it at this point. I think it's just super important to realize when you inflict you know financial damage or whatever it is to someone else and really like put yourself out there to, to make it right uh interesting enough i think because you know when a lot of people they you know, we're going to get into it in leviticus obviously in a few weeks where you just go through all these different types of sacrifices and this is where people start like freaking out because they did they hear you know sacrifice a god right and I think, if I'm not mistaken, about two-thirds of the uh, sacrifices in the Torah are Thanksgiving uh, offerings, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what, Dave, yes, no, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. But that's what this is, definitely, at least in the context of this chapter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, all right. Um, all right. I just uh, can I cover? Uh, I had a uh, basically what offerings we see in the uh, the New Testament as well. Okay, go. Uh, go I just brought it. out a few a few variations, but Matthew five twenty three twenty four. Therefore, if you were offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift. So it's really important. Um, you know, to make amends with each other, even. Um, Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of Elohim's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Elohim. This is your true and proper worship. Um, I think that's a theme you kind of see over and over. First Peter 2, 5, You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Elohim by Yahusha HaMashiach. Hebrews 13, for Yahusha, therefore, let us continually offer to Elohim a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of the lips openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good, to share with others. For such sacrifices, Elohim is pleased. And then uh, Philippians chapter 4, I have received full payment. I've done more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from someone <laughs> their fragrant offering, uh, acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to Elohim. So 
it's kind of this idea in the New Testament, you know, with the temple not around that we can still offer sacrifices or offerings in many different ways, mostly giving and um, just generally like being good to our brothers and sisters. Yeah, that's uh, one of the themes in, what is it, First Peter, I think chapter two, where he talks about spiritual sacrifices. And that was one of the questions that I was asked a couple weeks ago when I did the Q&A, you know, what is a spiritual sacrifice? And if you look at the, the context of that chapter, he's talking about all the things he doesn't want you to do. And they're all how you treat other people in, in uh, negative ways. And so a spiritual sacrifice is obviously, you know, how we treat other people. And that's why it's so imperative what Yahushua said about, uh, you know, he, he doesn't even want your sacrifice. If you're out there, uh, you know, making, in, you know, enemies and treating people horribly, like he wants you to go out there and make amends with people, which is, of course, what we did last uh, tour portion, right? As we look through the, the idea of restitution and, and so on and so forth. And there's, guys, there's been times where when I come up on the the, the fall feast or the spring feast, and I think it's something we should all do is start praying and analyzing and asking the father to, or if, if ask uh, Yahusha, like put on, put on my mind and my heart, people who I have wronged. And this kind of, kind of sucks. I mean, it's, you know, it, especially a lot of the people out there who don't like the Torah to begin with. Right. And you could just see where it's like, they're, they would just love it, right, for you to, to go up to them and go, you know what, I wronged you, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's hard to do, but I've had to go do that. I've had to go call people up and, and you know, email or whatever and just contact them and say, you know what, I if I if I have wronged you in any way, please let me know, um, you know, and I want to make this right with you. And that is the type of uh, worship and, and sacrifice I know that uh, the Father wants absolutely, and that's of course, you know, understanding the Torah on a deeper circumcised heart level. Um, agree, disagree, Dave? Yeah, man. I'm all okay. about it. I think, I think that's like basically the entire theme of everything from Matthew forward. You know, it's like, and we don't have a temple, right? So like, you know, I, I've talked to people. And by the way, we should have uh, probably pushed the polo group at the beginning. But um, I've talked to people on Polo who like really want to do sacrifices. In fact, some of them have done offerings in their backyard because it's like it's something that we we read in, in here and we want to do it. We want to do these offerings. But at the end of the day, like they're not the same. And, uh, you know, they're they're just things. It seems like Yahusha tells us the weightier matters, right? Like, it's just, it's so clear seeing, even even just right here. All right, well, we're already 30 minutes into this and we got like like five verses. So let's keep moving forward. This is, uh, now I'm showing you guys here, this is your, you know, typical standard. Uh, we just read that Yahuwah is showing Moshe what the, the temple looked like in heaven and he's telling him to make a, that's the blueprint, right? And so he wants us to make one here on the earth. Now, this is the typical rectangular. I think this one looks squarish to me. Uh, temple that we see. I do like all these um, these awesome, like, yurt-looking things all around it. I think that's that's pretty awesome. But then we come down here. And, of course, Dave, you know what we're looking at right away. This is 
uh, Andrew Hoy's model, and he spent years putting this together. What he the Tabernacle in the Wilderness. He's Project Three Fourteen. If I wrote it there, if anybody wants to look him up, please do. He has books on Amazon as well, and I've had him on uh, TUC in the last year. And interestingly enough, I mean, what does this look like? It looks like the firmament, right? And so you could read this and go when, interestingly enough, when when Yahuwaha showed the blueprints of the tabernacle to Moshe, was he showing him the firmament? Uh, it, it, interestingly enough, the, the chapter before that, we saw that the Ten Commandments, it was written on a bone or fragment of heaven, which would have been the firmament. And it was actually like the, the, the color of the, uh, the firmament. All right, here's some of the parallels with Revelation and the Torah. Now, keep in mind that it just said that Yehovaha showed Moshe the model of it in heaven. And so here, Yochanan is seeing the same thing. The pattern shown to Moshe patterns uh, parallels the pattern shown to Yochanan. We see the altar of sacrifice, Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of Elohim and for the testimony which they held. Revelation 4, 6, the sea of glass. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like a crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And you can compare this with Exodus 24.10, where it says, and uh, so, and I guess he saw uh, the Elohim of Yasharel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. That's what I told you about the, the bone of, of heaven. And we know that there's water above the firmament, and this would be the, the sea of glass. Uh, and uh, that's, of course, what was uh, under his feet. Interesting. Seven golden lampstands in Revelation 1.12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And, of course, those would be uh, menorahs. The golden altar, Revelation 8.3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which, which was before the throne. And I just thought of this, and this, you know, it's one of the things that really gets to me. You know, I, I love putting a menorah out there and, you know, shining it through a window. And people come up to me, Christians, and you're like, are you Jewish? And I'm like, no, I just, you know, have a menorah because my high priest in, uh, the context is Christians, right? And be like, my high priest in heaven, he... He uh, walks amongst the, uh, the menorahs, and, you know, there's I mean, menorahs in heaven. They just look at me like I'm crazy, right? The hidden manna, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And what else do we have here in Revelation? Oh, the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of His Covenant. We'll be talking, I'll be talking about this a lot tonight. Then the temple of Elohim was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So, you know, I guess at the end of the day, the question is, is the ark of the covenant in, uh, in heaven, or is it on earth? Well, I think that there's a mystery to all of this, kind of like the, the sea of glass. If you look at my cosmology and looking at the greater realm, that there appears to be something like the sea of glass, that it, it is simultaneously in the high heaven, but it is simultaneously on the earth over by the hidden wilderness. 
and we see the uh, the the souls under the altar. Uh, no, that was actually uh, up here, Revelation six nine. And I pointed out before that there's these souls underneath the altar in heaven, but I also believe they were simultaneously under the altar in the earth, as testified by the voices heard by the priests as they were released. Uh, and so a, a lot of this, I, I, I kind of think there's something about the Ark of the Covenant up in heaven, but it's also on the earth. Uh, it's, it's just a mystery that it's in kind of two places at once, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm not going to read all of this from the legends of the Jews. I have this here just in case I wanted to, but I'm not. But I want to point out here that I was reading this today, and it said that during his day with him, with Yehovah, uh, Elohim showed Moshe all the seven heavens, not going to go over all that cosmology tonight, and the celestial temple. So it, it, interestingly enough, it's vaguely, it's very vague about what the celestial temple is. You would think that in Legends of the Jews, it would be more descriptive. Maybe it is later on. I don't really know. But I've pointed out what if the possibility that actually, you know, it the it is the firmament right well this is what triggered me and this is going off on a hound hunt i'm sorry dave i'm gonna this is my show but i i read this and it said that uh, he turned he saw a host of angels in garments that have the color of the sea okay so i want everyone to think in their minds what color is the sea and then it said this said god is violet and i was like wait a second wait the ocean is the sea isn't violet and, but I knew exactly what was going on here because I've been looking into this in the last year and I haven't spoken publicly about this, but okay. So right here, you see, here is the color violet. And I decided to look up like shades of sea blue. And so on the right, you see, these are the different typical shades of sea blue, which is very different than violet. So how in the world is the, the ocean, the sea of violet color? All right. Well, this is from an article I pulled up, and it said, The Curious Case of the Missing Color Blue. And it was featured, as you can see, in Ripley's Believe It or Not. And it says, There are some universal truths in life. Water is wet. Puppies are adorable. That, that's definitely true. Uh, puppies are ador adorable. And the sky is blue, etc. What if we told you that wasn't always the case? It turns out the color blue is a relatively new concept. Scientifically speaking, it has always existed as part of, uh, as part of the visible light spectrum or the rainbow, but studies of ancient texts have shown that humans didn't really see blue until modern times. All right, so this is one of the big discussions. Why in the world, until very recent times, are there not one single report that has been shown where anyone has ever seen the color blue? And that's a question that's being asked. Did people not see the color blue until rather recently and what changed? I can't really answer that. Here is their official explanation, which is just, in my opinion, is a big cop out. Uh, I, I don't buy this, but here's what it says. Author of the book, Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages, his name is Guy Dutcher, writes that perhaps the reason for the lack of distinction between colors is because blue just isn't a color that appears frequently in nature. I couldn't disagree with that more. Anybody, I mean, assuming that you're nowhere near water and we need water to live, um, you know, <laughs> you look up at the sky and it's blue. And so they say, so we didn't need a word for it because people didn't really think about the sky much. They didn't think about water much. They 
obviously didn't need a color. And he says that the only ancient language with a distinct word for blue was that of the Egyptians who used blue dyes. Um, but you would think that this article, they go through how Homer and all the ancients, nobody talked about blue and they would describe the ocean as violet. And you would think that a guy like Homer would go, uh, there, there's no word in the Greek language that describes the color of the ocean. And then the philosophers would get together and go, yeah, I think we need to think up a word to describe the color of the ocean. All right. So that was my little, uh, little rabbit trail. I wanted to, my hound hunt, I wanted to go down tonight. And I don't accept any of the explanations as to why the ancients apparently did not see the color blue. And that's something that will keep me up at night thinking about, uh, particularly tonight when I can't go to sleep. I'll probably be there in bed thinking about that. Okay. Reading on. I can come in there real quick. Please do. It's just, it's interesting. We were talking about on Discord the other day about Techalit or however you say it, the, the blue color of the tassel. And, you know, they've, they've been searching for like, you know, whatever they use to make the dye. And they, they found this, um, I guess it was a muscle or something that ex excreted this, this blue dye. But they came to the conclusion that Techalit is both blue and violet because it comes out blue, but then it turns violet over time. Or maybe it comes out violet and turns blue over time. I can't remember which, but uh, it actually changed color, which is, I don't know, kind of interesting in the context of your story. Yeah. So keep on, it's, you know, it's not my story. This is like, you know, mainstream. They're asking the question, why can we not find this in the ancient text? Now, I, I put that out there to anybody. This isn't about proving no wrong. It's just, if that is an incorrect theory, if we can look in the Bible and in, embedded in the language is blue, then, you know, we should write up Ripley's and say, maybe you need to take this down because, you know, this is going beyond uh, what you're saying. Uh, but otherwise, if it is true, um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what was going on uh, because that's a question. Could people not see blue before? I don't really know. Okay. The Ark of the Covenant. Here we go. And you shall fashion an Ark of shittim wood or as pamela puts there shatayam wood two and a half amaha and let's see what she puts here for the number three that would be uh literally mother the measurement was a mother of the forearm generally translated as cubit so the word here is literally mother two and a half mothers his uh his length and one and a half amaha the width thereof and one and a half amaha his height or of course cubit according to the King James. And you shall overlay him with unalloyed gold housed within and overlaid outside and shall fashion upon him a wreathed border of gold in a circuit roundabout. And you shall cast metal for him, four seal rings, and shall gift it on the four feet and two seal rings against the one side and two seal rings against the second side. And you shall fashion separate staves of Shatayam wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put in the separate staves in the seal rings against the sides of the ark to lift it up uh, off ark with them. In the seal rings of the ark shall exist the separate staves. They shall not be removed from it. And you shall give into the ark the precepts that which I give unto you. And you shall fashion a covering of redemption. And you shall fashion a covering of redemption of unalloyed gold. Two and a half amaha his length and and Amaha his breath, and you shall fashion two carabam, that would be cherubim, of gold. Hammered work, you shall fashion them in the two extremities of the covering of redemption, 
and you shall fashion a uh, like a cherub karab on this end and one karab on the other side of the covering of redemption. You shall fashion the cherubim over the two ends and the cherubim shall exist with wings spread out upwards with the ends of their wings interwoven over the covering of redemption. And the male soldiers shall face their brother regarding the covering of redemption. I'll say this really quickly here that, because uh, I'm not going to cover it later, it, is that it, it it seems to me that the idea of the two angels uh, facing, and it's calls them brothers. I find that really interesting. It almost seems like they're modeling in heaven. These cherubim, these cherubim angels are uh, modeling in heaven how Yehuda and Ephraim are supposed to uh, face each other as brothers. That's kind of what I get from this. So, and the male soldiers shall face their brother regarding the covering of redemption. So shall the faces of the cherubim exist, and you shall give the covering of redemption over the ark from over the higher part and into the ark. You shall gift or precepts, which I shall gift to you. And at an, an appointed place, I will espouse myself to you, and I will set forth my words unto you from over the covering of redemption from between the two cherubim, which are against the ark of the revelation. I like the, her phrasing there, the uh, the ark of the revelation. All the way which I establish as a fixed covenant unto you, the sons of Yasharel. All right. So um, this right here is a typical kind of, you know, I, I looked at different art pieces and, you know, they all kind of vary, but you guys all know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Now, I brought up Andrew Hoy earlier, and his, I, I couldn't find a circular uh, Ark of the Covenant. However, you can see a circular chair here. And if, I don't want to misquote him, but I asked him this specifically when he came on, and it appears as though he has the idea that the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was actually circular. Um, so yeah that's really interesting right there so i just put that there so you guys can kind of picture maybe maybe what it looked like and i don't know myself i'm just you know i think that he has put in a lot of research into this and uh, worth listening to now this was interesting i was just looking at like i decided to look up medieval artwork on the ark of the covenant and i don't know if this is missourced because that does not look like the ark of the covenant to me but you do see a cherubim up on top and this is, I guess, uh, you could see, I didn't want to pay like the, the 700 bucks uh, to get the stamp off of this, of the Alamy. But um, it it looks like a, it looks like these things, like the reliquaries uh, that we see all over in museums from the, um, the what I think is Millennial Kingdom. And the reason I'm bringing this up, it's kind of interesting because here we see they're playing music around it. And we don't exactly know what these functions are. I'm pointing this out because you know, a lot of people will say that the Ark of the Covenant was like an ancient weapon. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Uh, clearly, you know, the strength of Yahweh is going out and, and killing people. I can show you a scripture verse where apparently he killed like 50,000 people in a single day who disrespected the Ark. Some people will say he was seven amongst 50,000, whatever. But he killed a bunch of people who disrespected it. Uh, but I almost wonder if the Ark of the Covenant did have some similar features to something like this. And, uh, of course, nowadays they're repurposed 
for something as simple as a holy finger bone. They'll they'll say, well, you know, we built this. Uh, the the people in the Middle Ages, medieval uh, times, they built these so that they could put like the finger bone of Saint Thomas or the you know the ashes of you know I don't know like the 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 hair of the follicles of hair of Mary Magdalene or something. You know, it's like the most ridiculous explanations when they. Uh, well, I put you. I mean, if you look closely at these, they look very much like the uh, baptistries, the octagonal shaped baptistries we see all over the world, not just in cathedrals, but also in uh, mosques, uh, in Islamic mosques. And they also look like bandstands and other things like that, like we see right here, where we see the, uh, these, of course, are pictures. For those of you who need a refresher on this, it's probably old for a lot of you, but you can actually see the the remains of these engines that actually sat within them. Here we have a picture here of, of what became a bandstand, but clearly you see like a Takamak type of engine in there that they posed with it before they removed it. And so you can see all these towers here. And um, so, yeah, so going back up here, I just think it's really interesting that we have this picture where it's marked as the Ark of the Covenant. They're, they're playing music around it and it's, I, I don't even know what's going on. Uh, all right. And what did I put here? Exodus 25, 20. Oh, that's this week. And the cherubim shall stretch out the rings above covering the mercy seat with the rings and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be, uh, shall be toward the mercy seat. So this is interesting here. Now I'm going to be talking later tonight about the temple in modern times, because as Dave pointed out, we no longer have a temple. And what does that mean? And I brought up the, the spiritual sacrifices as found in Peter. But here we see Psalm 61.4, and it says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Uh, I, I, I didn't even get that, uh, honestly, until uh, this week when I was studying for this. I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's a there's the Ark of the Covenant right there, the cherubim with their wings outstretched, and I will trust in the shelter of your wings. So it, it's literally saying like you're going into the, the holy of holy places and you're finding your, uh, you're abiding there forever with Yahuwah. It's actually a beautiful passage. And I'm not going to read this whole thing here, obviously, for lack of time. This comes from, is it First Samuel? This long passage here. It's that was like the first thing I wanted to share. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? Share it. Uh, it's go for it. a funny story, kind of, though. Like, how could you not? I don't mind if you read it. Do you want to read it? Well, would you like me to read it, or do you want to just talk about it? Um, I was just going to read it. I think it's funny, the hemorrhoids and the... Okay. Uh, and, and the God bowing down. It's it's a great well, story. Well, why don't, you, why don't you read it, and what re uh, translation are you reading from? Uh, this is the Et Zephyr. All right, well, well, I'll just follow along on here as you go down it. Okay, uh, I just started with 1 Samuel 4, 10 through 11. It says, And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen, and the ark of Elohim was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. And then 1 Samuel 5. And the Philistines took the Ark of Elohim and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of Elohim, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early 
on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of Yahweh. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. When they rose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of Elohim. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off to the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that came to Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of Yahweh was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he dis uh, destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of Elohim of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our, our Elohim. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of Elohim of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the Elohim of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of Elohim of Israel about thither. And it was so uh, that after they had carried it, the hand of Yahweh was against the city and uh, with a very great destruction, and he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Therefore, they sent the Ark of Elohim to Ekron, and it came to pass, as the Ark of Elohim came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the Ark of Elohim to Israel to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of Elohim of the Elohim of Israel and let it go to its own place that it slay us not for and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city and the hand of Elohim was very heavy there. And the men that died were smitten with emeralds and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It's just this funny story thinking about Dagon, first of all, bowing down to this thing. And then of course, everybody getting smitten and everybody, you know, it's just a, it's interesting that when they just took this, you know, this piece of the tabernacle and uh, wrong move. Yeah. And of course it, it says that he, uh, he struck. So then he struck the man of Beth, Shemesh, because they had looked into the Ark of Yahuwah. Now, what I'm about to read, if you go to like Bible Hub or whatever, and you look at different translations, maybe I should have actually put that in here. I'm reading from the King James, and it says, uh, he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because Yahuwah had struck the people with a great slaughter. Uh, but some translations just say he struck, I think, seven men. Uh, so very big translate what does yours say because you didn't read all this way does um, yours say seven men or i'm not sure i just copied it onto my sheet oh, okay all right find it sorry well if it's if it's the suffer or anything close i think he keeps pretty close to the uh the king james but yeah well okay so okay why do i have a blank page here all right so right here, this is a the only now we're going to talk about Ron White here for a second. And 
interesting thing about Ron Wyatt, and I've said this before, is that anytime you bring up Ron Wyatt, if you go look at YouTube videos and people are talking about Ron Wyatt, they're like, the first thing it's something, but, you know, like I know Ron Wyatt discovered this, but he was, you know, in a cult and they use the cult word a lot. And they scare people off because, oh, no, he was in a cult. He was like one of those cultish people. So we don't know if we can trust this guy. Well, what was this cult they were talking about? Well, he was a Sabbath keeper. And, you know, that just obviously you guys know that makes Christianity very uncomfortable to actually keep the fourth commandment. Like he was literally, I guess, keeping the Ten Commandments is a, a, a cult, cultish behavior, you know, not murdering, obeying your parents, so keeping the Sabbath. But he actually ate clean, too. And he basically he read the Old Testament and he obeyed it. He was one of those guys. He was a Seventh-day Adventist guy. Um, he, you know, didn't keep the, the pagan holidays, to my knowledge. And I personally think so. The thing is about Ron White, he claimed to discover Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did. It's, that's still snubbed to this day. You go to like the, the creation sites, they still snub his discovery. He claimed to find the Red Sea crossing, and he did. He claimed to find Mount Sinai, and he did. In fact, he's been uh, vindicated on these all three of those I mentioned now. Uh, like we know that that is the real Mount Sinai. He discovered it. He was the first guy to come out and say, no, it's not the place they have in Egypt. He went found the Red Sea crossing. He went and found the uh, the, the Mount of uh, uh, El Zephon, and he found the Mount Sinai and all the evidence there. He claimed to find Noah's Ark, which people laugh and scoff at that. The last discovery that he made, it was in uh, the last big one, I think it was in 1984, and he claimed to actually find the Ark of the Covenant. Now, keep in mind, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in, what, 1981, talk the town. People are like, is this a hoax? And he was pressed to find, to show evidence on this. And he's like, you know what? I found it. I'm not going to show it to you. And he did the right thing. And pe pe uh, it's almost like, look, I look at my fruit. Look at all that I discovered. And... And I, if I didn't mention if I did mention this earlier, if I'm repeating, uh, forgive me. But I personally think it was because Yahweh Yahweh is looking around, going, "Who is out there being obedient to me?" Because I have things I want to reveal to people. Oh, this guy right here, he's being obedient to me. You know what? Uh, why don't you find this and this and that and this and that? Because nobody else is keeping my Sabbaths out there, and you are. So, you know, I, I think that's why he found all that he did. I think he was just a guy who was obedient. He was open to um you know discover the truth and, and yah showed it to him in amazing ways well what you're looking at here is the only known photograph uh of the the ark of the covenant now uh interestingly enough in the the video that he claims he's of course dead now there were several people in his corner that all testified they saw the original video they would not go public with it the reason why is it, it was simple uh um uh, simple logic is like this is a holy item it was reserved for the holy of holies it is not for the public to scoff at right it's not for unclean eyes and so on and so forth well as he found that as he was uh he actually the way he described it and i'll take you guys through this real quickly is that he said that when it was buried in the chamber which happened to be directly under where uh Gal Galgotha, where yahushua mashiach was crucified i'll talk a little bit about that tonight too he said that they, um, they, they, the ark was put into this cave with other temple treasures, though obviously this is the most important one. They took animal skins, put it over that, and then over the animal skins they put boards, and then over the boards they put rocks. I mean, they were really covering this stuff up. And then they built a doorway out of rock 
to keep people out. They built it so that you can get back in if you needed to, but they want to keep people out. Well, they didn't open this doorway. They said that uh, they actually found a crevice that went around into it, but you couldn't. It was such a narrow crevice, you couldn't actually pull the arc out of it. Well, when they got, he said he went into there dozens of times. And finally, one time he went down there and he said there were four angels down there and uh, giving him instructions, all this kind of stuff. So as he was, uh, he decided to, uh, I'll talk about those directions. Well, I'll talk about it now. So they basically told him that he, they wanted him to take the, the black stuff off the top of the arc and have it tested. So normally each cell in the human body has 23 pairs of chromosomes so 46 total chromosomes half come from the mother the other half from the father of course the father determines the sex because if the obviously as you guys know that uh women have two x's and so if a man produces an x you got a woman if he produces the y you have an xy that's a male right so two of the chromosomes uh the x and the y chromosome are called sex chromosomes for those of you who haven't had your sex education yet and um, the females have two X chromosomes. Okay, so the mercy seat blood sample that he pulled up, there were only 24 chromosomes. There should be 46. He said the 23 chromosomes were from the mother and only one from the father. So that's really interesting. Uh, anyways, as he took the video footage and he scanned the room, uh, he said when he played back the footage, only the Ark of the Covenant, it was the shining light that when he was in the cave, he didn't see it. But in the, 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 the actual footage was being uh, blurred out. And so anyways, he saw that as a sign that it wasn't to be seen. And he says that you're actually looking at the two cherubim angels. You would never really know looking at this, but uh, really interesting. So, and I, I personally, here's the thing. I, I believe it. I really do. And I, I think that the, um, the Zionist, at, by this point, this was 1984. I think that they either know it's there or they don't care. And if, if they were to actually pull this thing out, it would melt their faces off. I really do. I, so you guys know my research that we've been through the Millennial Kingdom. And I, I think that it is imperative that the Ark remain there this entire time, that it was never touched, that it was never uh, trampled upon, it was never pulled out. And the fact is, is because the blood of Mashiach is still on it. So here we look at the sprinkling of blood. This is from Bezorah Kepha, Gospel of Peter, chapter 14, or verse 14, because there's only one chapter. And then they drew out the nails from the hands of Adonai and laid him upon the earth, and the whole earth quaked, and great fear arose. Then the sun shone, and it was the ninth hour. Now, when I read that the first time, it really stuck out to me because he theorized, uh, Ron White theorized that there was a crack in the earth from an earthquake that the blood came down from the cross and sprinkled the mercy seat. And at first I'm like, okay, that's kind of a far-fetched idea. All right. Uh, but then I read this, but then I read this passage here and this comes from the book of Joseph of Arimathea. And it says, and raise your hands who here has read the book of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. It says, and he gave the vessel to Joseph, who received it with great joy. The vessel, it's talking about the Holy Grail here. Joseph and Nicodemus departed together. Nicodemus went to a smith to get pincers and a hammer. Then they came to the place where Christos was on the cross. And Nicodemus said to the people there, you've done wrong in dealing with this man as you demanded of Pilate. But now, and by the way, the book of uh, Joseph of Arimathea straight up says that the, the Jews killed him too, that uh, Pilate had nothing to do with it. Just as it says in the Gospel of Peter. 
Uh, and oh, hold on, I need to go back. And uh, but now he's clearly dead, and Pilate has granted the body to Joseph and, his, and has commanded me to give it to him. They all replied that he was sure to come back to life, right? So the Jews are saying they're certain he's coming back to life. They they want it, they don't want the disciples to get his body. They're already coming up concocting the story that they're going to steal it, right? Because they're thinking he's going to come back to life. He said he would, uh, and he was a holy man and a holy righteous man. So they, they want to kill him all over again. They just want to keep killing the guy as much as he comes back. So they refused to let the body go, but Nicodemus said that nothing they could do would stop him from taking it. So they all marched off to Pilate. Uh, and they're, they're marching off to Pilate to demand guards for the tomb. While Joseph and Nicodemus climbed up and took Jesus Christos from the cross, Joseph held him in his arms and laid him on the ground, cradling him tenderly and washing him most gently. And when he had washed him, he saw his wounds still bleeding and was dismayed. And here's what I want you to see. Everything up to this was context. Remembering the stone that had split at the foot of the cross when the drop of blood fell. And I read that and going, wow, because uh, like how in the world would they have known that? And for what purpose? Like nobody that I saw has, I've never read, read any text that theorized there was blood that went down from the cross and hit the, the mercy seat. Uh, the first person I ever saw that theorized that was Ron, was Ron White based on the discovery. So let's look here at some passages. Uh, Dave, I, I don't want to just leave you just sitting there. Did you have anything you want to jump in and talk about that? Um, Any thoughts, comments? No, not yet. I uh, I was going to talk about Second Baruch 6, though, that really that's the whole reason people even think that the ark is on the earth and then it got swallowed by the earth but yeah go for it you go okay yeah yeah you want to read that you have it in front of you yeah um yeah sure and, and it came to pass on the morrow that lo the army of the Gadithians surrounded the city and at the time of the evening i baruch left the people and i went forth and stood by the oak and i was grieving over sion and lamenting over the captivity which had come upon the people and lo, suddenly a strong ruach raised me and bore me aloft over the wall of Jerusalem. And I beheld, and lo, four angels standing on the four corners of the city, each of them holding a torch of fire in his hands. And again, sorry, and another angel began to descend from heaven and said unto them, Hold your lamps and do not light them till I tell you, for I am the first to speak a word to the earth. Sorry, for I am first sent to speak a word to the earth and place it in what Yahweh Sevio has commanded me. And I saw him descend into the Holy of Holies and take from that the veil and the Holy Ark and the mercy seat and the two tables and the Holy Raiment of the priests and the altar of incense and the 48 precious stones wherewith the priest was adorned and all the holy vessels of the tabernacle. And he spoke to the earth with a loud voice, earth, earth, earth hear the word of elohim and receive what i commit to you and guard them until the last times so that when you are ordered you may restore them so that the strangers may not get possession of them for the time comes when Jerusalem also will be delivered for a time until it is said that it is again restored forever and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up yeah, the other uh, th there's one other passage that talks about the burying of the ark uh, of the covenant. It's either second or fourth Maccabees, and I wish I had it in front of me right now. And that's the only one that that throws a, a 
kind of a curveball into this. And Ron White actually addressed it. He had an interesting take on it, but he thinks it's a translation issue. But it says that uh, something to do with that the ark was buried in the mountain where Moses was buried. And you're like, well, wait a second. That's over, you know, on the other side of the Jordan River. Now you have some problems there because uh, the it was buried when the Babylonians were coming in. They had formed a line. And there is no way that they're going to let uh, a prophet, you know, be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there, there's the, the, the very seat that your God sits on that we're going to come and conquer and put it in church. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go come right by us, past the catapults and the infantry and go buried in peace. Like, no, no, no. And so his suggestion is that it should be translated to say that from the mountain where Moses stood and looked over the land that you could actually see it, uh, see the place where it was buried. Uh, which I, apparently you can. You can see there uh, to Jerusalem. So uh, anyways, this is um, talking about the blood on the mercy seat. And it has occurred to me since I want to do a series on Galatians, and I'm currently in the early stages of writing it, uh, the Galatians according to the Torah, one of the things I really want to cover is the idea of the atonement and how this has, you know, Christians, they talk about the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. You know, he covers me, all this kind of stuff. And they don't really have this understanding of the actual atonement and how this, how, if you think about it, for the, for those out there that are saying the Torah is done away with, you have some serious issues if the, the, the results of do, you know, the, the consequences of doing away with the law, right? What are the, what are the results of that? If the law no longer stands, how are you defining sin? How are you even defining the very sacrifice of uh, Yahusha if the, 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 you know, the, the law system that he was dying for is done away with, right? It has to abide. It has to stay. And what does Yahusha look like as our high priest, right? Because we say he's our high priest. So let's look at the role of a high priest, the Day of Atonement. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring it its blood inside the veil, and we, we will learn a little bit later that the veil is the body of Yahushua HaMashiach. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bowl and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. That would be the Ark of the Covenant and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Yasharel. So he's doing it for the for our uncleanness. If we, are, if we were at that time grafted into Israel or, you know, whatever, we're the seed of Israel and uh, we are a Hebrew. Uh, he, the high priest is going in and he's doing this on our behalf and because of their transgressions, their transgressions of what? Of the Torah, because of their sins, for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle, tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, I'm going to put the challenge out there as we're going through the Torah portions. Now, maybe Pamela will figure out this riddle. Uh, there appears to me to be actually no um, sacrifice for sins. For conscious sins, there's unconscious sins, but if I were to go out and consciously sin, transgress the Torah, there appears to be no sacrifice for that. Uh, I could be wrong. Please, somebody point it out to me where I'm wrong, except for the high priest. The high priest comes in and he does a sacrifice for the transgressions of Yasharel. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Yasharel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before Yahuwaha and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and the sum of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around, 
Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Yasharel. And then I skip forward. So I, I start from 15 through 19. I uh, skip 10 verses to 29 just for lack of uh, time, save time. This shall be a statute forever for you, forever. In the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. This is speaking of the Day of Atonement. Whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you, for on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before Yahuwah. That, that's, a, I guess, a whole different discussion. And I know we've discussed this, I think, Dave, in the past. Uh, one of the in individuals out there, I, I, I you know, pat him, I guess, on the back for this. Uh, uh, applaud him, uh, Sean Griffin over at Kingdom in Context. And I, if I'm, I don't want to misquote him, but... I think he's out there making the argument that actually, as our high priest, Yahushua HaMashiach, he is still making these uh, sacrifices for us on our behalf. And so that's a that's a whole different discussion to have, but it's interesting to note. Reading on, it is a Sabbath, a solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Yashuel for all their sins once a year. And he did as Yahuwah commanded Moshe. All right. Now let's, uh, that comes from Levit Leviticus chapter 16. So this is the context of the Ark of the Covenant, its purpose. Uh, this is the the, the, the sin for all of Yasharal, which could only be made by the high priest. And this is one of the things I've repeatedly stated, that when people say that the system has changed now, if if the Torah was done away with, I mean, again, we have some, you have some serious issues as to the, the domino effect of what that actually implies. Um, if there is no heavenly law holding things up uh, together. But if I were in Israel thousands of years ago, before Yehusha HaMashiach's sacrifice, I would have to point to my high priest and say, I have faith. Here's the faith part. I have, I believe I have faith in my high priest that he has performed the atoning sacrifice for my sins. Just as now I point to Yahushua HaMashiach and say, I, I have faith that my high priest who resides in heaven has performed the atoning sacrifice for my sins. Whether he does it every year or he literally did it one time and that was it. I have faith that he... He does it. So he has done this. So nothing has changed from the high priest of the Torah to my high priest, Yehusha HaMashiach. And this is what we see here in Hebrews chapter 9. But Mashiach came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, this is one of those things where I think it's as above, so below. I think it's talking about a most holy place in heaven above, but I actually think that it's talking here about how his blood actually went down onto the mercy seat. I've also suggested the possibility that if there was not an earthquake that opened it up and sprinkled it straight down, which I think that's the case, I could totally see a scenario where a resurrected Yahushua HaMashiach literally goes to where the Ark of the Covenant is and sprinkles it. I could totally see that scenario. But I uh, want to show that there. Okay, moving on to uh, 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Let me scroll down so you guys can actually read this. Servants, 
be submissive to your masters with all fear. Now, this goes back into our last Torah portion, straight Torah right here. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards Allah Hayam, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, right? So again, but like this is what Yahushua HaMashiach talks about. Like, you know, when you're being drugged into court, like make up real quick with the person you've wronged because the judge, that person and the judge will have a, a more lenient um, sentence for you. But if you're a jerk and you deserve it, like he's saying like, what? what benefit is it if you endure it patiently like you you're getting beat up because you did something to deserve this but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently because you did no wrong and you did good you are living a righteous holy life this is commendable before allah Hayyam. not being a jerk right uh you know being you know like i've got the torah right you're a torah terrorist you're going around and just like beating people over the head and being a total jerk with people and people are persecuting you for it for to this you were called before uh, because Mashiach also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no who committed no sin, uh, Yahushua didn't, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself, and here it is, here's the atonement, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed first peter 2 18 through 25. uh let's see what passage does this come from first john chapter 2. uh first john may be my favorite book in the whole bible my little children these things i write to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father yahushua hamashiach the righteous and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only but also for the whole world i think when he's saying for our sins only i think he's speaking to a jewish audience I'm, i think he's saying here that not just for us you know the the children the the, the actually the tribe of yehuda uh who are left uh but actually for the goyim who can be grafted in like everybody has a chance to be grafted in now because because of him I don't think he's speaking like for some sort of universal salvation there. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. You read that to uh, you know, to Christians and they just, they get so triggered by this. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of Allah is perfected in him. But this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walked uh okay this comes oh yeah i want to talk about this uh this comes from bereshith 15 of course this is the paleo so we see the uh incident when yahweh makes a covenant with abraham and it says a stupor fell upon abraham so he's basically like going asleep here and this is the situation where yahweh cuts the animal in half the torch passes through it and as I pointed out like a dozen uh, Torah portions ago now, that this was an ancient custom where both parties would pass through this animal. And the idea is, is, is like, if you do not uphold your end of this deal, this is what's going to happen to you. This animal that's cut in half, this will be you, right? We're both agreeing this is very serious. And we're both going to keep this. However, Abraham did not pass through it. It was Yahuwah himself. This is a blazing fire which passed between the pieces. 
And it says, at the same time, Yahuwah, the ever-living, cut a covenant with Abraham. So he's saying, I'm going to do this from beginning to end. Uh, you're not going to have nothing to do with this. Like, you're not going to fulfill this. I'm going to fulfill this. And then we read this in Matthew, um, where this is the Last Supper. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Um, so here we're seeing basically a flashback to the incident with Abraham cutting the animal in half. This is the covenant. And he's saying, here is, I'm giving myself now, you know, the curtain is torn, right? This is his body. I'm going to be the one that's going to be torn and um, for your sins. All right. And then we see this in Revelation, beautiful passage. Now, when he had taken the scroll, uh, this would be the lamb. The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's a really cool thought. To think of our prayers in these bowls of incense. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to Allah by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our Allah and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times, 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard the saying, Blessed and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That comes from Revelation chapter 5. All right, getting into Paul territory, let's read this quickly in Romans. Uh, Romans 3 is just a phenomenal, I love Romans 3. It's a phenomenal chapter. But now the righteousness of Allah Hayam, apart from the Torah, is revealed, being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. Whenever Paul says anything that sounds like he's doing with the Torah, just keep reading. Another few sentences, and we'll get there tonight. Even the righteousness of Allah Hayam through faith in Yahushua HaMashiach to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Allah Hayam, being justified freely by his grace. And here it is through the redemption that is in Yahushua HaMashiach, whom Allah Hayam set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, Allah Hayam had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Yahushua. Basically, the same thing like with Abraham here, that uh, that he is the justifier. He's the righteous one, right? He's doing everything. It's by him alone, uh, his sacrifice. And uh, I'm just going to end it here, uh, you know, because Paul says, I love this. Do we then make void the law through faith, right? Because it's like... So he's he's throwing out the argument here. It's like, okay, if you're going to say that because it's all through faith in what Yahushua Hamashiach is doing, that you don't have to do anything, he's like, he's like, so so he's asking the question because he knows his audience. They're already asking this, and he's like, so then do we then make void the Torah through faith? Because a lot of them are saying yes, we make void the Torah through faith. This is what the argument of Christianity says. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the Torah. So. As John would say, as Peter would say, that if you're 
truly grafted in, if you're truly a child of, of Allah Hayyam, a son of God, uh, and you claim to know Yahushua HaMashiach, then you will keep the commands. And anyone who claims, as John says in 1 John, who claims to uh, love uh, Jesus, Yahushua HaMashiach, but does not keep his commands is a liar. So as Paul would say, we established the Torah. All right. Um, getting back into the Torah portions. Thank you, uh, Dave, for that long. Um, <laughs> but I, I know there's a lot of things you, you want to talk about. So let's get right back into this unless you have anything you want to add. Um, I had like a mile on sort of like the uh, what the Ark was made of. Um, what's in it um i don't know if you want to talk about that before we get yeah that's that's i want to hear it um so just to give like definitions exodus 31 says and he gave to moshe when he had finished uh to speak with him on mount uh sinai the two tablets of the testimony tablets of sapphire stone from the throne of glory weighing 40 sane inscribed with the finger of elohim um so the you know the tablets of the testimony one of the objects that go in the uh the ark and i know you're i'm pretty sure your boys play minecraft right yes so you you may be aware of lapis lazuli and forgive me if you guys talked about this last week because i haven't watched that one um but lapis lazuli is what you use for like various uh you know enchantment or whatever right I I am not yeah, I, I kind of tune out from Minecraft, so I'm not Minecraft uh proficient. <laughs> well anyway. So just tell tell me tell me about it. Well maybe I'll maybe I'll be horrified. That was basically the whole thing. You know, you they use it lapis lazuli. I I think one thing that um I'm starting to come around to is that there's a lot of things that when we were Christians like 10 years ago, we were going, Oh no, you can't touch that with a 10-foot pole and and now I'm starting to see things in different light. Like I have, you know, like here's an amethyst stone. You know, it, it's like um, these different stones mean things. Um, I actually have some lapis around here somewhere. I have, you know, some other stones that are really cool. And they all have like these properties according to other texts. Um, but one thing I was going to say is, you know, a lot of people say sapphire stone. If you look up the targums in like... Uh, uh, you know, like the Aramaic Targum Jonathan says sapphire stone. But actually, a lot of scholars are starting to say sapir actually means lapis lazuli. And that makes a lot more sense. You had talked about at the beginning how lapis was probably like the sea of glass. That makes a lot of sense. It's got that blue color. It's got the gold. And uh, as I'm going to go through in just a sec, it, it seems to have a lot more spiritual sort of like significance than sapphire does and i think you know a lot of people think the the ark may have been a machine you had pointed out maybe it was like one of these i forget what you called it but it looks sort of like a small capula or whatever um maybe millennial kingdom tech or whatever but at the end of the day i think you know a lot of what actually went in there um mattered for its effectiveness or, or what it was used for and so forth um I'm just going to read some notes that I took on this, but so the lapis in particular, um, it, it's blue. It's got golden pyrite. Um, it looks like the heavens when you're looking up, um, you know, it embodies the vastness and beauty of the divine. 
Um, the commandment for the the tzitzit is featuring a blue thread. Um, definitely has some celestial symbolism, um, given that it's blue as well. Um, you know, it's reminiscent of the sky. Um, and you know, as they look up, you know, they they the the tassel reminds you to keep the Torah. And as they look up, they also see that blue in the sky, right? Um, so it's something that is just always with them. Um, and I think it was important that the Ten Commandments were actually inscribed on this in the first place. But um, continuing on that, the um, historical and cultural context, the, the preference for lapis, I guess, from um, like scholars, they see a lot of it in the Middle East and all these different cultures, which is really cool. Um, and there's a lot of spiritual significance and a lot of like magical, spiritual, alchemical, and even esoteric. And it's just to me, like they put this, this giant, you know, weighs 40 saying, I don't know how many pounds that is, but like in this arc that's already made of gold and shit them wood. Um, so in, in some other cultures, this thing, the lapis, it represents wisdom and enlightenment. Um, it's often called the stone of truth, which is kind of interesting. Um, obviously, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Um, it's believed to foster deep self-awareness and inner knowing and connection to a higher wisdom. And this is not the Bible. This is like sort of like the esoteric cultures of the world. Um, you know, all these magical sort of new agey stuff. This is what they think of it, too. Um, third eye activation. Well, I'm I'm accused by people of being too esoteric, so I'm glad it's you this time that's uh, <laughs> talking about third eye activation. And bro, uh, I'm so into this stuff, and I think this Torah portion in particular sort of like paints that picture in such a big way um, because of the the things that we're mentioning um, that are in the either the ark or the, in the tabernacle. Um, yeah, I'm happy to take that hit. Uh, some people believe it leads to increased intuition, psychic abilities, um, helps with dreams, communication. It's thought to encourage honest communication, both with oneself and others. In protection, in many traditions, lapis is worn as a protective amulet, shielding against negative energies and psychic attacks. So this is like non-biblical sources. Again, alchemical, um, lapis represents the journey towards enlightenment and spiritual evolution. Um, it symbolizes the alchemical process of transforming lead into the gold, um, since it has the gold like pyrite in it. Deep blue color is uh, with gold and pyrite. Inclusions reflect the celestial um, for the alchemical world too. And then the esoteric perspective, ancient Egypt, obviously they used it. You had mentioned um, they were like the first ones to use blue. Yeah. Um, and they used it for official history, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. This is kind of all official stuff because it's non-biblical, but it's you know they use it in like eye makeup and stuff like that. Um, astrology lapis is associated with um, some of the um, the planetas, <laughs> the wandering stars, and uh, in mystical lore throughout history, lapis is associated with royalty and deities um, and visions. Is used for divination, enhancing dreams. Um, and accessing hidden knowledge. So like the Bible is not exclusively saying 
this stone is important. These colors are important. This is like the whole world. And then they took this stone. They put the most important thing literally carved by the finger of the most high in this box. And it just sat there. And it's, to me, it's just kind of astonishing. Um, that's pretty much all I had to say on that. But I think uh, it's just important to recognize that uh, not everything is just, you know, as clear cut as we, we make it seem. I think there is a lot of like truth in other areas that we need to look to in terms of like spirituality and like sort of like seeing in the spiritual realm. Anyway. Yeah, this is what I call, you know, what we call controlled opposition. And I was, I was uh, speaking to recently somebody who had come to the truth of the flat earth and all these other things. And they're listening to all these things I'm saying. They actually came to the flat earth because they tried to prove me wrong. They were people I knew in real life. And uh, they went out there and they were shocked to find that the earth was flat. And they grew up Roman Catholic, the kind of Roman Catholic that, uh, you know, like they actually never picked up a Bible and read it in their life. They don't actually know what's in the Bible. They actually confess that to me, but they don't want anything to do with it because for them, they have now realized that Rome runs the world and that Rome is evil and that the Pope holds the Bible to his bosom. And that is proof to them that they need to throw the Bible out. Right. And this is what I'm trying to convey to them. This is controlled opposition. They're coming from the opposite end of this and seeing the Bible held by the people who are running the world. So what you were just talking about is, you know, what I try to not with a lot of great effect, but try to point out to Christians and even people who are coming into the Torah and are waking up to things like this. And they still are hung on this idea of, you know, the new age movement, right? And, oh, look, you're talking about new age stuff. This is new age. And they just throw that out there. Just a blanket statement. It's almost like the blanket statement of Gnosticism, right? Oh, you're, you're talking about something esoteric. You're a Gnostic. And it's like, okay, that's actually not what it, it it, it's almost like, you know, I've been baptized. So am I a Baptist? No, I'm not a Baptist. I was baptized. It's just, it's a blanketed term, right? There, there are things officially that the Gnostics believe that I don't believe at all. And um, that's actually where this, you, the, the Yah is Satan, the, the text straight up comes from the, the Gnostic camp. Um, but uh, with this, right, what you're talking about, all this esoteric stuff, alchemy, alchemical stuff. Yeah. I mean, just because controlled opposition holds it and they've coined some term new ageism uh does not make it false and um unfortunately a lot of people are not going to climb out of that box they're just going to see that 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 phrase oh that scares me i'm keeping away from this but as you're saying it's true it's all in the bible and uh, i know that there's things that you're probably really holding back that you <laughs> maybe for a different torah portion uh you'll come i actually have some of that in here too but i am um... Like, this is only one stone, too. Like, you know, they have the whole breastplate. If we're not asking the questions, why these stones? Why is everything in gold? Why this wood? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not going to get the answers. So I think, you know, we just need to understand that, you know, we don't hold all the knowledge in the 66 canon. <laughs> and that's a pretty good starting place. Well, I think that but you bring, okay. We are, we got like 30 minutes, we're running out of time, and I only read through like a third of this or less. Um, but you bring up a really good point because as I was doing my study this week, and I'm kind of going on different like Reddit boards and things like that, I always like asking questions and seeing how just the typical, you know, churchgoers, you know, respond to things. And I was seeing a lot of comments of people 
I use the word freaking out a lot, but really having Christians having a hard time with this, these chapters. And I said how we're going through 50 chapters now where Yahuwah is saying, okay, there are very specific things that I want you to do to build for me so that I can have a covenant relationship with you, come live amongst you. And, you know, this is what you're going to do. And they have a really hard time with this because in Christianity, yeah, they're taught that you just live your life, right? And you're good. And he doesn't really care. It doesn't matter if you're a, you know, I saw one guy commenting. He's like, he's like, but my God, you know, he works with, you know, prostitutes and homosexuals and all these. And I'm not seeing anything like that in here. I'm like, well, it, yeah. So that's, <laughs> that is a question we should be asking, right? Like, why does he have these specific ways of doing things and what does it all mean right so when you were telling me this week that you were looking into esoteric stuff i was like oh man because i didn't look at any esoteric stuff and uh i can't even hold a conversation with you this week on that because i did not i looked up i was like looking up ron wyatt you know <laughs> I so, love Ron Wyatt. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the rest of this. And I have some closing uh, notes I want to make. Closing, uh, I want to talk about the actual temple in our time. Uh, and then, uh, so I'll get through the whole thing. And then, but I'll let you finish whatever, you know, here I'm wasting time. Let's just get right, right into it. And you shall fashion the table of uh, Shittim wood to, wait, did I already read this? I just want to make sure. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. No. And he shall fashion a table of shittim wood to Amaha. That's two mothers, uh, his length. Don't forget that. Two mothers, literally. And and Amaha, his width, or cubit in the King James. And one and a half Amaha, the height thereof. And you will overlay him with unalloyed gold and fashion a wreathed crown of gold in a circuit roundabout. And you shall fashion to him a border, a hand breadth. In a circuit round about it, and you shall fashion a wreathed crown of gold to the border in a circuit round about, and you, you will fashion to him four seal rings of gold and gift the seal rings against the corners, which are the four feet in conjunction near the border shall exist the seal rings to house the separate staves to lift up the turk. You shall make the menorah shaft and her branches, her cups and her crowns and her blossoms with all will all exist out of the same. And six stalks shall come forth from the sides that three stalks of the manure from one side, three stalks of manure out of the second side. That should be pretty self-descriptive for everyone. You got the, the, the central uh, shaft and then the three coming out, making a total seven. Three almond blossom shaped cups shall watch on one side with a crown and a blossom and three almond blossom shaped cups watch in each stalk, a crown and a blossom. Therefore, six stalks shall come forth from the menorah. And it's interesting, it talks about almonds here. And so a lot of people have speculated, I mean, if this is describing the tree of life, uh, what kind of, you know, what's coming out of it? And the only thing we get here in the Torah is, uh, is almonds. Almond, at least almond-shaped cups. And in the fourth menorah, cups watch with her crowns, with her blossoms, and a crown below two stalks from out of the same, and a crown below two stalks out of the same. Six stalks, behold, shall go out from the menorah. Their crowns and stalks shall exist from part of the whole of turn work, each one of unalloyed gold, and you will fashion her seven lamps, and she will go up uh, her lamps with the light situated against passing over her face, and her uh, tongs and her fire pans of unalloyed gold. You will fashion her from a kekar, that would be usually translated as a talent. 
So you will fashion her from a talent of unalloyed gold with all these implements. And you will observe and fashion in the manner of building which you have seen in the mountain. So uh, we have here a, a test to your biblical literacy. We have a menorah here on the left. And it has, let me count, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Three coming out one side, three the other. Six in total with one in the middle. And then we have one here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I'm not asking you, Dave, because I know, but like, which one is the biblical menorah? Just point that out. And I actually did see this menorah here on the left. This is in Jerusalem, and they they claim that uh, if they ever get their temple built, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't believe that rabbinical Judaism actually wants a temple. I, I really don't, as much as they say it, because uh, they don't want to hand over to the Levites, and the Levites are the ones trying to hit up the because the Levites, want, the Sanhedrin, want to go back to Torah practice. They actually want to do away with the Talmud, and it, you know, obviously rabbinical Judaism does not want that to happen. Uh, so I think they're doing everything in their power, despite what everyone thinks, uh, to stop a temple from being built. Anyways, yeah, there's that. All right, let's keep reading. And thus he will fashion the Mashakan dwelling place, 10 white curtains twisted with uh, thukalath, that would be cerulean purple, and with Eregamam, that's reddish purple. We saw that earlier tonight. And with crimson, worm crimson. You shall fashion a charabayam, that would be a, 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 a cherubim angel, with devised artistic work. The length of each curtain shall be 8 and 20 amaha, and the width 4 amaha. One measure shall be applied unto all the curtains. Five curtains shall be coupled together, woman unto sister, and five curtains coupled woman unto sister. And you shall fashion loops of Thukalath on the edge of each curtain from the end to couple them, and so shall correctly fashion of the edge of the utmost curtain in the coupling of the second. I think next year uh, for this portion, I'm going to try. I, I'm sure that Andrew Hoy, uh, this and maybe a couple others are very popular speaking engagements for him. I'm sure he gets asked to come and speak on them. I'm going to try to nab them next year, maybe uh, have him take us through this from a circular perspective. You shall fashion 50 loops on each curtain, and you shall fashion 50 loops on the edge of the second curtain, which is coupled, causing the, the woman to receive the loops of her sister. And you shall make 50 hooks of gold, and shall couple the curtains, woman against her sister, by hooks. Thus the Meshachan dwelling place will exist, Akkad. And there's the Akkad word uh, for uh, one, right? Uh, as Yehusha HaMashiach prayed that, uh, that we would be Akkad, just as he is Akkad with the Father. And you will fashion curtains of she-goat skins to house over the Mashakan dwelling place. Eleven curtains you will fashion them. The length of one curtain shall be 30 amaha, and the width shall be 4 amaha. Each curtain shall be measured the same, and you will couple five curtains for separation and six curtains for separation against the front face of the tent. And you shall fashion 50 loops over the edge of one curtain in the utmost coupling, and 50 loops over the edge of the curtain which is coupled to the second. And you shall fashion 50 hooks of copper, and you will bring the hooks in the loops, and you shall couple the tents. And he will exist a cad. And that which remains over and above on the curtains of the tent, half of the curtain that is over and above shall pour forth, hanging over the rear of the Mashakan dwelling place. And a mother of the forearm of this, and a mother of the forearm of the other, on the, on the over and above in the length of the curtain of the tent, it shall exist pouring forth to hang over the sides of the Mashakan dwelling place from this side and from that side to cover it. And you shall fashion a covering for the tents of ram skin dyed from red earth 
and a covering of thuka uh, shayam skin for the higher part. And here she says, thuka uh, thuka shayam is an obscure word of uncertain meaning. Traditionally, has been interpreted as badger skins. We went over that earlier tonight, but there is insufficient evidence for this. Other possibilities are seal, dolphin, or the most or the most likely, in the humble opinion of this translator, which is Pamela, a species of antelope. That's interesting. So according to Pamela, she thinks it's uh, antelope. And you show fashion boards for the uh, Mashakan dwelling place of Shatayam Wood set in place. Ten amaha shall be the length of the board, and one and a half amaha shall be the width of one board. Two hands for the board, the one joined by means of uh, tenons, woman against her sister. I know that that's spoke, spoken positively here, like women to women, but you know, it sounds like woman against woman, right? You know, sister against sister, brother against brother. Both sides read from the same Torah. Thus he shall fashion to all the planks of the Mashakan dwelling place, and he shall fashion the planks to Mashakan dwelling place, 20 boards for the south side southward. And 40 commanders of silver you shall fashion beneath the 20 boards, two commanders beneath each board for his two hands, and two commanders under the board for his two hands. And to the second side of the Mashakan dwelling place on the north side, 20 boards, and 40 commanders of silver, two commanders beneath the one board, and two commanders beneath the other board. And for the extremities of the Mashakan dwelling place seaward, you shall fashion, oh, I just highlighted all that, excuse me. You shall fashion six boards, and two boards you will fashion for the carved corner to the Mashakan dwelling place in its haunches. And they shall exist bearing twins over his head unto the one seal ring. Thus he shall exist to both. So shall exist for the two corners eight boards with their commanders of silver, sixteen commanders. He shall exist two commanders for each board. And you shall fashion bars of Shatayam or Shittam wood, five for the boards of the one side of the Mashakan dwelling place and five bars for the boards of the second side of the Mashakan dwelling place at the two sides. And I just lost my place. Uh, uh, C word. Okay, I'm starting here. And the middle bar in the midst of the boards from passing through on account of this from extremity to extremity, and you shall overlay the boards with gold and their seal rings. You shall fashion of gold and houses for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. And you will raise up the Mashakan dwelling place according to the judgment which you observed in the mountain. Uh, and you will fashion a veil of Thukalath and Aragon, or she puts a reddish purple, and crimson worm crimson, and of twisted work, artistically planned and fashioned with the cherubim. And you shall gift it over four columns of shatayim wood overlaid with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold over the four commanders of silver, and you shall gift the veil beneath the hooks, and you will bring there from the house to the veil the ark of the precept, and shall divide the veil until you between the kudash and between the kudash, kudashayam, the most set-apart place, and you shall gift the covering of redemption over the ark of the revealed precepts in the kudash, kudashayam, the most set-apart place, and you shall gift the table from outside the veil and the menorahs conspicuously before the table over the side of the Mashakan dwelling place southward, and the table you shall gift northward. And you will fashion a covering to the entrance, the Thukalath and the Aragaman, those two colors, and crimson, worm crimson, and white twisted from uh, variegated work. And you shall fashion for the covering five columns of shatayam wood and overlay them with gold and the hooks of gold. 
and you will cast from metal five commanders of copper. And oh, we still have another chapter. Okay, let's keep reading. And you will fashion an altar of shate and wood, five amaha in length and five amaha in width. The altar shall exist four squared, and there uh, three amaha shall be his stature. And you will fashion horns upon his four corners, and they will exist apart from the whole. And you will overlay him with copper. And you will fashion his boiling pots to clear away ashes and his shovels and his bowls and his flesh hooks and his fire pans for all his utensils. These you will fashion of copper, and you will fashion for him a network from braided copper. And you will fashion over the network four seal rings of copper over his corners. And you will gift it beneath the circuit of the altar from downwards. And the network will exist from downwards even into the middle of the altar. And you will fashion uh, separate staves for the altar, separate staves of shatayam wood, and overlay them with copper. And his separate staves shall go in the seal rings. The separate staves shall exist upon two sides of the altar to lift him up, hollow out for a tablet. You shall fashion him like that which you observed in the mountain, like those things, so he will fashion them, uh, the form of the sanctuary. And he will fashion an enclosure for the Mashakan dwelling place of the edge toward the Nagab of the south, veils for the enclosure of twisted white. A hundred Amaha is the length for the one edge. And his 20 columns and his 20 commanders of our copper. The hooks of the columns and the joining are of silver. And so for the edge of the north in length, the veils are a hundred in length. And his 20 columns, his 20 commanders of copper, the hooks of the columns and the joinings of silver, and the width of the enclosure for the edge seaward are the veils of 50 Amaha, their 10 columns and their 10 commanders, and the width of the enclosure for the edge eastward toward the sunrise is 50 Amaha. And 50 Amaha are the veils for the shoulder piece. They're, uh, see, they're the side of a building. This, she calls the shoulder piece the side of a building. There are three columns and there are three commanders. And for the second shoulder piece are 50 veils, there are three columns and there are three commanders. We're almost done. One last paragraph. And for the gate of the enclosure, a covering of 20 Amaha, Thukalath, and Aragaman. Those are those two colors again. And crimson, worm crimson, and white twisted from uh, variegated needlework, four columns and four commanders. And in the columns of the enclosure is a in a circuit roundabout being attached with silver. Their hooks of silver and their commanders of silver. The length of the enclosure is 100 Amaha, and the width is 50 by the Amaha with twisted white and their commanders of copper. To all the utensils of the Mashakan dwelling place and all of his service and all of his hooks and all the hooks of the enclosure are copper. I did that. I survived that. That was a lot. Of, thanks, everyone, for hanging in there with me uh, through that. I noticed we dropped uh, 20 viewers in, <laughs> in my reading that. So, um, it, Dave, uh, was there anything specifically there that um, we're kind of coming up on the end? Now, we can go over 20, 30 minutes if we need to, but um, was there anything specifically in there you wanted to mention, talk about? Um, yeah, so I guess... Let's go back to the showbread, which is where we started. All right. Um, I just wanted to say, so I, I guess the one of the biggest sort of like defining scriptures in my faith personally was this conversation in Matthew 12 where, uh, you know, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of Elohim, ate the bread of the presence which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, 
But for only the priests, have you not read in the law on how the Shabbat, the priests in the temple profane the Shabbat and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Shabbat. Um, and obviously, and Yahushua said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and that believes on me shall never thirst. But uh, that whole story, you know, obviously the, the bread is sitting in there for the priests, right? Um, it's such a big deal, the way he explains it, I think, in, in the context of keeping the Torah and what it means in our walk and how we are supposed to think about what we're doing like at my, you know at my work like we um we try and teach people how to think about things not how to do things and I, it you can just see him doing that here he's he's trying to teach people how to think about things correctly and reframe you know what it means to keep torah and i don't know that that scripture in particular it's just interesting that he pulls out the showbread. And if you go into the actual story of it in First Samuel, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, they go in. It's actually the priest that gives it to him. But um, and then, of course, he is the bread of life, which is just extremely important. But that's all I had on the bread. Uh, well, I had nothing on bread, so that was uh, uh, perfect. But um, yeah, just take us through the rest of whatever, because I read a lot there, and you know, I had to kind of get through it all. But because um, I have, I want to talk a little bit about the temple itself a little bit more. Uh, but was there anything else? Any other? Um, yeah, I. So the tabernacle is um, oftentimes compared to the creation story which I found pretty interesting. Um, obviously, day one, and Elohim said, let there be light. You have the instructions for the golden lampstand. Day two, you have the firmament. Elohim said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it defy the waters from the, the waters. Uh, instructions for the veil, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. You have land and vegetation on day three, and Elohim said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, etc." You have the embroidered pomegranates and flowers on the priestly garments, the sun, moon, and stars on day four. You have the precious metals and stones using the tabernacle's construction. Um, day five and six, uh, creation of creatures and the sea and the air, land animals and humanity. And Exodus 26, you have the animal skins, the materials used in the construction. And then lastly, uh, and on the seventh day, Elohim ended his work and he rested. And this is actually the next four portion, but uh, immediately following the tabernacle, there's the Sabbath. And so you see this like mirror of the creation. And what's really interesting, which you already brought up, was that the tabernacle actually looks like the earth. And one thing about Andrew Hoy's model in particular that really caught my attention was the, the outer boundary. Um, you know, you have this dome, you have the firmament, you have the earth, but then you have like the actual ice wall uh, as well. It kind of represents our little piece of the the, the greater realm, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I'd love to, 
now I now you and I are both really big on the moon map now. I know that you're like a big moon map guy as well. Um, but I like to think about, you know, when you think about the, the earth as a seal, uh, the clay under the seal, right? And the idea is, is that the earth itself is like the, it's almost like the signature of our creator. And this is like my, this is my authority, right? This is, you know, this is at the, the stamp of the king here. And so it, when you talk about that, uh, that wall around Andrew Hoy's uh, circular dome-shaped tabernacle, it, it, I almost think of like that would be like, you know, the outer darkness too, where like people are, if you're either, you're like kind of like in his presence or you're uh, you're thrown into the, the trash heap, right? You're kind of like thrown outside of um, beyond the firmament, right? That's not where you want to be. So I don't know. I don't know why I just said that, but something yeah, I think yeah. about. It's a really interesting model, and it just makes a lot of sense. Um, the only other thing I really wanted to go over, and I can kind of abbreviate this. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of metals, and there's a ton, like the wood is really interesting to me. Obviously, like acacia wood, there's like 80 species, and most of them contain DMT, which is hilarious on a, a bunch of different levels. Um, but it was the gold. Um, you know, why gold for, you know, all these different parts of it? Um, the uh, Notre Dame is probably the most famous, what I would call millennial kingdom structure. Um, and out in front of it, obviously, you know, there was the Ophrys statue that they have. I, I think it was destroyed or they took it down or whatever, but um, you've read uh, Fulcanelli's book, I'm assuming, The uh, the Mystery of the Cathedrals. I, I actually have not read that yet. So he's I, got... I, I, know, I know you've talked to me about that like a couple of years ago. It's pretty interesting. The beginning is amazing, and then it gets kind of weird and esoteric and hard to understand. But this particular story about Ophiris, um, he... In the mystery of cathedrals, he talks about how the Messiah in the story of Ophrys is the nascent gold. And, um, you know, a lot of people think about alchemy and they're, they think, uh, you know, it's just turning stuff into gold, right? Like gold is like the whole show. But interestingly, it's actually not. It's the philosopher's stone, right? It's the red mercury, which we know from studying all this stuff. Um, but to me, it was kind of an interesting thing in that the, first of all, the gold is used in the tabernacle. The gold represents, according to Fulcanelli, the Messiah. And it seems like the Philosopher's Stone actually represents the Father um, in a way that that is like ultimately the greater, but um, still related. It's, you know, the, the Messiah is on his way to becoming the red Mercury, if you will. Um, kind of paints this neat picture and obviously there's a lot of i'll kind of skip over <laughs> there, there there is some i would say spiritual elements being used though that you got the lapis you have the dmt stuff you have the the priests wearing the you know the cannabossum oil and i think these things are all just meant to help kind of like thin the veil so that they can commune with the most high within that tabernacle so that's all i'll say about that 
Yeah, no, it, it's um. Well, he just you just dropped it. You just said it, and uh, I insinuated earlier. You know, you talk about the 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 cannabis oil, and um, you you know, I I've, I've oh, I'm stumbling right now. Um, I've obviously come a long ways on a lot of things over the last several years. I mean, again, the the knoll from ten years ago, or even five six years ago, would have gone. Oh, that's all. You know, that's all occult stuff. That's all, you know, whatever. And I've come to really appreciate this idea of controlled opposition. But in all these discussions, uh, when we're talking about, you know, cannabis or alchemy or any of this kind of stuff, even just take it something like alcohol, right? Because some people are still very much against any kind of alcohol, which is obviously in the Bible. It seems like a lot of the uh, King James only people are, you know, very anti-alcohol. And, um, it, at the end of the day, it's it's wh whether or not something opens you up to the spiritual world, that's not what is to be avoided. It really comes down to a person's fruit, right? Who are you channeling? Are you channel are you unclean and living an unclean life and channeling unclean spirits? Or are you, you know, communing with the father, right? It it's almost like when we you, you had mentioned earlier the, the third eye. And um, I know this is a, a family show, but, you know, it, it's kind of like um, genitals. Uh, whenever, you, at the end of the day, when I talk about, you know, everybody knows that I wrote a book on the idea that Yahushua HaMashiach perhaps got married. And that, that was one of the most, um, I think that that's one of the things that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Not that I'm sorry I did that. I mean, it, you know, it's called Mary Magdalene, wife of Messiah. But this is kind of like how people ultimately think about sex. Because when it, at the end of the day, people were like, sex is dirty. It, it has to be unclean. It has to be dirty. Um, uh, no, of course, you know, we'll see that a person is actually unclean uh, if they uh, eject semen. But it, it's not dirty in that sense you know it's not it's it's actually very human right it's something that we are commanded we're told to do to reproduce right and so the idea is is that if you tell people for example that mary the mother of yahushua stayed a virgin her whole life they get all upset they're like no she would she would never remain a virgin like no she had sex you know that she had sex with joseph right but then if you say that yahushua it's all backwards yahushua actually did a very human thing and he actually you know took the, the, the commands given to reproduce and these kind of things. And he took a wife, you know, like, oh, he would never do that. Right. And this is ultimate, you know, he, he, it's almost like that's too, it's too unholy. It's too unrighteous for him. Right. It can't possibly be, be righteousness. And this is the, where, where it comes out in the end that Satan came along and slapped on the genitals. Right. That can't possibly be from, from God. And, it's the same thing with like the third eye right at the end of the day it's either like you either have you either have it or you don't and um and it's not the third eye itself that's to be avoided it's it's the controlled opposition that is leaving you know this this new age kind of uh, unclean spirits you know demonic kind of lifestyle but if yeah, if Yahuwah put this third eye in us for communion with him, you know, it's not to be feared. That was my long speech on that. Uh, hopefully I didn't ramble too much. Hopefully that made sense. And um, yeah.
you're giving me that look like i, I don't know but uh, no, I, don't, I just like i don't want to scare people off because obviously like i run a community and stuff back my way but like you know at the end of the day like jd pow not to like throw you out there but you know when you came to us on our polo group it was like you know kind of like more of a new age vibe going on you know and i think it's just true a lot of people there's a lot of spiritual truth out there and like the bible you know the 66 canon doesn't hold the bag on like here's the truth and nothing but the truth that's it it's like they're you know we had talked about like how there are other elohim right um yeah you know they brought truth to the earth maybe some of them are worthless mysteries but some of it definitely wasn't and it, you know that's kind of what i'm interested in getting to the bottom of just understanding what it's all about well my you know my understanding of worthless mysteries is the idea that they didn't actually bring they didn't actually instruct mankind to live a set apart and righteous life right so in that sense it was worthless uh but yeah they definitely brought the mysteries of heaven no doubt about that and but this is really where it, where it hits the fan because when you start talking about um it, it, it's almost like okay a couple weeks ago i gave a presentation on chess and uh it i never know what's going to go right or wrong with people some people i, I think oh people are going to hate this okay later tonight after this i'm giving a presentation on the bible and time travel and i'm i'm just thinking in my mind like people are going to hate this people are going to hate this i don't know how people are going to respond sometimes people love things that i think they're going to hate and the things that think they're going to love they just hate it right but it's one of those things with like chess where it's like some people uh are love chess but as soon as you tell them it's like esoteric and there's deeper spiritual meanings in it they're like oh no no this is evil i'm keeping away with from that you see what i'm saying like that i think that the point i'm trying to make tonight is that uh it's it's really hard to break some people out of that shell of understanding that some of the things they thought was evil because it was attached to new age or the, the big bad word alchemy like things like that that you know it's evil right and um just end on that note controlled opposition people all right so i'm gonna we're coming up we're just past the 11 o'clock hour i want to end on a few notes here and um i want to talk about the temple of the body now in Yochanan, the Gospel of Yochanan John, uh, Yahushua says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moshe, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed in Moshe, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now, Dave and I, we're going to be doing a, a video in um, probably soon where we want to really address this surgence uh, of, uh, of people who are claiming that the Torah was written by Satan. And of course, you have some problems here because he's like, yeah, well, Moshe testified of me. So now you've got problems because now he, Messiah is identifying as being Satan as well. Uh, but uh, we're going to see some of what he's, the idea I'm presenting here, uh, other than the fact that Yahushua HaMashiach is Yahuwaha, that he wrote of me, I am Yahuwaha. But what if also the temple that he uh, Moshe wrote about actually is testifying to Yahushua HaMashiach as well. All right. And because uh, we see here in Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. All right. Now we see different examples of sanctuaries in Ezekiel 11, 16. It says, therefore say, thus saith Yahuwah Allahayam, 
although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary. That's interesting. In the countries where they shall come. In Psalm, we see, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Now, we know that the rock is Mashiach, uh, the cornerstone that many rejected. But we see the, this idea here of really entering that holy of holies with uh, with Allah Hayyam. Now, I mentioned earlier tonight, we're looking at, uh, I think this is this is First Peter chapter 2. And he says, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of Allah and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up at a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Allah by Yahushua HaMashiach. So here we see, we saw the stone in Psalm. Uh, now we're seeing that the uh, he, of course, is a living stone and we are also stones, right? So we're building this picture of this, this grand tabernacle, uh, this grand, grand temple that is being built. I'm not going to read the whole thing for lack of time. When Yahushua cleansed the temple in Yochanan chapter 3, says the famous line, we all know it. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, they were like, 40 and 6 years was this temple was this temple and building, and you are going to rear it up in three days? Of course, we know as we look at extra biblical texts and other things like that, they were putting it, maybe not at first, but they put it together and go, oh, okay, we know he's talking about his resurrection. We know what he's talking about. Uh, now this, this comes from getting into Paul territory, 1 Corinthians. I'm not going to read the whole thing for lack of time. But here he says, now ye are the body of Mashiach and members in particular. Know ye not that ye are the temple of Allah Hayyam, and that the Ruach of Allah Hayyam dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of Allah Hayyam, him shall Allah Hayyam destroy. For the temple of Allah Hayyam is holy, which temple ye are. Now I want everyone to think about this. Like there's the there's the there's a meme that I love where <laughs> it's like people are like, you know, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. And the response is like, that should frighten you. Like that should frighten you much more that only God can judge you and that I can't judge you. Because he says right here, he says, like Paul is saying, okay, you're the temple, right? You are the temple of God. And Christians run with this, you know, and you know, they're the temple of God. But he's like, he's like, if you defile the temple, uh, if any man defile the temple of Allah, he's talking here about the the abomination of desolation, right? Of a temple. Allah shall destroy that person. But then he flips it on the person. He says, but you're the temple of Allah And so it's like he can destroy you too. Like that should frighten us. If we claim that we are the temple and that we are embodied by the spirit, the Ruach of Allah uh, like, man, that if anything should cause us to eat clean and take care of our body, that's it right there. Now we see here in Chronicles 7.1, it talks about Solomon. Uh, he made an end of praying. Fire came down from heaven. And it says the glory of Yahuwah filled the house. Well, look what John says in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. This is the same glory, I believe, that, that Solomon saw in the temple. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But then we see in John later on, chapter 14, Yahushua says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, keep his commands. 
and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So if we say that he lives within us as Mashiach has made his home with us, he says the requirements here is that first for that to happen, that uh, we will keep his word. And the first John there says, you know, his word is, of course, his commands. Um, Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Elohim himself will be with them and be, and be their Elohim. Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy, holiest by the blood of Yahushua. So we saw the Ark of the Covenant, the sprinkling of the blood, the mercy seat, the Holy of Holies where it is, saying, Having the boldness to enter the holiness, holiest by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And of course, and I've been saying that all night, so there it is. The veil is his flesh. The veil was torn. His, his, it was like he was torn for us. And having a high priest over the house of Elohim, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So there's the faith there. We have to have faith in our high priest. But obviously here, having a true heart, that's going to line up with the heart of Torah, right? Uh, a true heart, a true, uh, true to his commands. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, Yochanan, saw the holy city, New Yerushalayim, or uh, if you want to get into acronyms, NY, New York, <laughs> New Yerushalayim. Uh, when I put NJ, people are like, New Jersey? So, but... You know, when I put in why, like nobody gets what that is. Anyways, New Yerushalayim coming down out of heaven from Elohim, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Adonai himself will be with them and be, uh, and be their Elohim. And I think that is conclusion for tonight. That's all I had. So uh, my, you know... I had made the comment earlier that when I was studying this out this week, uh, and I was, I was going to like Reddit boards, and I love to see people's questions and the responses they had, and I was seeing a lot of people jarred, and they're like, "I don't like this because I live, you know, I live my life however I want, and God's cool with that. That's my Jesus, right?" And they're like, "This, this, this can't be the same Jesus." I mean, some of them are just very honest about it because, like, look at how holy this is. And then you read that quote in Paul, and it's like, no, you, you guys are misreading Paul because he's clearly stating that, like, Alhaim would kill people. He would destroy people for dishonoring his the Ark of the Covenant or his temple or whatever. And he's like, do you think it's going to turn out any different for you if you are now the temple and you're living, you know, you're claiming to know him and claiming to be in the covenant with him, but you're living a very unrighteous, very unholy, very unclean life. Um, so that's the challenge that I would put out there for everybody, that if we're going to say we're the temple, that we are a part of the body of Mashiach, this temple, that the living stones that Peter talks about, we need to take it seriously. We need to take it seriously and, and live a life that is, um, uh, you know, uh, the best The best way I'd phrase it is Psalms 1, blessed is the man who delights in the Torah of Yahuwah, and on that Torah he meditates day and night. Right? And that needs to be us. We need to meditate on it day and night and live it out and not just tell people we are, but actually obey the commands or else we're a liar and the truth is not in us. So, uh, Dave, anything you want to say on closing? That's all I got.
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, I I uh, I I love it because I know exactly what room you're in, and because I've been to Dave's house, I should have said that earlier, and I can like envision myself over there, and I um I I I still think about sometimes I would you know it, you're like on the uppermost northern end of uh, our section of the plane, uh, but I would love to get up there and visit you again um, someday. So. All right, guys, I'm going to take a few minutes break. It, it, it's about 15 minutes after the hour, and I was supposed to start, you know, 11 o'clock scheduled for my next presentation on time travel and the Bible. And uh, take a few minutes break. We'll do the late show, and it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a meaty and a lot of material tonight, probably two hours. So I'll be looking at like 1.30 by this point. But um, love you guys. Thank you all for making this a tradition in your household. And uh, we'll do this again. Good night, everybody. Shalom.